It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. President Joe Biden's latest list of judicial nominations is all about California, where the federal district courts have the most emergencies and vacancies of any state. Joining me is Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. So how many nominations did Biden make to California courts? Last Wednesday, the president nominated three nominees for the Ninth Circuit from California and two Central District of California and one Eastern District of California nominees. But there are still in California many, many openings that are emergencies, another 15 district ones that have no nominees. So still the state is the worst case scenario but it's great to have at least some nominees and and to have the three for the Ninth Circuit is important, of course, because President Trump confirmed 10 people for that 29-judge court. Senator Dianne Feinstein said in a tweet, after reviewing more than 300 applications to the federal judiciary, I'm confident that these nominees will make outstanding jurists. If they've reviewed hundreds of applications, why haven't they proposed more nominees to fill the spots? Well, that's a good question. I assume that she and Senator Padilla sent much smaller packages of recommendations to the White House. And my guess is they are in the White House, but there are many other vacancies around the country and other senators, I think, sent their recommendations earlier. And so there may be a bit of a backlog there, but the White House has been moving very quickly. And I assume we'll have another package of California nominees in the short term. Uh, So hopefully that will work more efficiently and more quickly going forward. So let's talk about the nominees for the Ninth Circuit. Three vacancies. And you have Lucy Coe. She's Asian. You have Gabriel Sanchez, who's Latino, and Holly Thomas, who's black. So is the attempt here to diversify the Ninth Circuit? Well, certainly those nominees are diverse in terms of ethnicity and to some extent experience, though all three are sitting judges. And of course, Lucy Coe is 
one of the finest district judges in the nation, was nominated by President Obama in 2016, but the Senate majority Republicans refused to give her a confirmation vote. I think because they were afraid that she, then she would make a record and be positioned for the Supreme Court. And so the nominees are very experienced and, of course, bring ethnic and gender diversity uh, to the court. Also diversity in experience. Judge Sanchez dealt with corrections and criminal justice matters when he was in the Jerry Brown administration. And Judge Thomas was a civil rights lawyer. Yes, and she worked at the uh, Department of Justice Civil Rights Division as well. So you're exactly right. They bring experiential diversity, as do almost all of the appellate and many district nominees so far from this president. Has President Biden nominated any white male? A few. For example, down in the Fourth Circuit where I am, Toby Heightens was a solicitor general, is a solicitor general for Virginia, and clerk for Justice Ginsburg and Eddie Becker on the Third Circuit, and he is a white male, And but there are very few others. That's exactly right. And Lucy Ko would be the first Korean-American federal appellate judge. That's sort of hard to believe that she's the first. Do you think she'll be attacked by Republicans for some of her rulings? Well, she may be, but... She has handled some incredibly difficult and complex cases emanating from Silicon Valley uh, and, I think, uh, done a fine job in those cases. And so uh, I don't think there's any issue about what a fine judge she is. And so I'm certain that she will be confirmed. You mentioned that former President Trump put 10 nominees on the Ninth Circuit. Is that circuit more Democratic appointees, more Republican appointees at this point? And will these new nominations change anything? They won't change the composition in terms of appointing president. There's 16 appointed by Democratic presidents and 13 appointed by Republican presidents. And the three who are assuming senior status were all appointed by Democratic presidents. Uh, but you're earning 20 or 30 years because these nominees are much younger, of course, than the people assuming senior status are in their 60s or 70s. So now tell us about the the nominees to the district courts. Well, uh, there are two for the uh, central district, and one is named Frimpong is her last name, and uh, she brings ethnic and gender diversity Second is Hernan Vera, and he brings ethnic diversity. Both of them are uh, presently judges, I think, in the state system in California. And then Jennifer Thurston, who's a magistrate judge in the Eastern District of California, which is in Sacramento, though I think she sits in Bakersfield. So they're all very experienced judges. They will be, I think, ready to assume the federal district court responsibilities. And, of course, the Central District is very much underwater these days. Um, It has still six vacancies on a 28-judge court, and it has a huge docket. The judges decide twice as many civil cases annually as judges in the rest of the country. 
uh, and Eastern is even worse. For decades, they have been underwater, and so it's great to have one more. But, of course, the judgeships bills, uh, based on the recommendations of the Judicial Conference to Congress, call for 15 new district judges in the Central District and I think four or five in the Eastern District, and we'll see if that uh, passes. There was a hearing in February, but it's not clear that Republicans will sign on, of course, because that would allow the president to make more appointments. Of course, if you don't fill all the vacancies, you may never get to the new judgeships should Congress choose to create them. The Eastern District of California's Chief Judge Kimberly Muller in July called the vacancies crushing. And I have to ask, why is California, why are they in this crisis situation all the time? Is it the fault of the senators from California not nominating enough or not working with the prior administration? Well, to some extent, it may be. I think Vice President Harris, when she represented California in the Senate, was opposed to a number of the nominees because she felt they weren't appropriate to sit in California. And some of it was political, but I think most of it was she felt they either weren't qualified or they were very uh, conservative. And I think that was true, though more so at the appellate level. Uh, For example, the Ninth Circuit nominees and appointees from Trump were quite conservative and have shown that since they've been on the bench. And so I think she opposed a number. It's a huge state. They have many, many district and uh, circuit judges. And so unless you stay on top of that situation, it's very hard to catch up. And so that's what I think we're seeing. But I'm optimistic from what you said, Senator Feinstein said, about 300 people vetted and then hopefully recommendations sitting in the White House that it will move. And the Senate has been moving very quickly. Every two weeks the Senate is in session, there's a hearing, usually for at least one appellate judge and four or five district judges. In fact, there's one scheduled for tomorrow. So there's no lag from the Senate's perspective. The White House is moving. It seems to be a well-oiled nomination and confirmation system that the president and the Senate majority have in place. When we talked before, Biden was nominating faster than any other president in modern days. Well, I think that's still true. If you were to look at the time right before the Senate recessed, I think you'd have to go back to Nixon to find as many appointees and probably even further to find as many nominees. There are 43 nominees now. But you have to keep in mind right now on the floor There are two appellate nominees on the floor who could have votes this week and about 10 more district nominees who could, and cloture's been filed on a couple. So once those are uh, confirmed by the Senate, then I think, again, by that point, you know, in September or whatever, after the recess, it probably will eclipse the number that Nixon even had. And so it may be unprecedented, the number. Is the Biden administration racing to get in as many nominees as they can before the midterm elections? Yes, I think they have been very straightforward about that. And 
They've made every effort to have the senator's recommendations come in as soon as possible and to process them as soon as possible and then to move them through the Senate as quickly as possible. At some point, the calendar dictates some issues. For example, when you get into the holidays, Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's, the Senate will be out and and it'll be hard to confirm a lot of people. But when they come back in January, they'll start again. And so I think that we could see huge numbers even by the time the Senate recesses in December. So maybe as many as 10 or 15 appellate and probably 50 or so district judges appointed, which probably would be close to records for a first year of any president. So now let's switch to a court that Biden wishes he could nominate someone to the (laughs) Supreme Court. Justice Amy Coney Barrett appeared at an event to mark the 30th anniversary of the University of Louisville's McConnell Center. She told the crowd, quote, my goal today is to convince you that this court is not comprised of a bunch of partisan hacks. What's your reaction to her speech? Well, that's interesting coming from her. And it seems to me what you should do is watch what they're doing not what they're saying. And of course, there's a huge firestorm over what happened with uh, SB 8 in Texas. And the court used its shadow docket to allow that draconian measure uh, to go into effect. So that makes the populace somewhat nervous about what's going on at the Supreme Court. It's not terribly transparent. You don't have hearings Uh, You don't have any oral argument. You don't have much by way of briefing in that kind of situation. And so when justices appear at political events, which is fine, they sometimes say things that may seem political. And, of course, we do value the respect that the people have for the court. So it should not be viewed as a partisan institution. And Justice Breyer's just written a book on that, and he's been speaking out about that. And so... It's important, and Chief Justice Roberts uh, is a strong institutionalist and is always concerned about the credibility of the Supreme Court. Thanks, Carl. That's Professor Carl Tobias of the University of Richmond Law School. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. After 
after a year-long legal battle between Apple and Epic Games, a judge has ordered Apple to make a major change to the way it generates money from its App Store. A ruling that chips away at the iPhone maker's grip on the $100 billion market for mobile games. So why is it that it's Epic that's appealing the judge's decision? Joining me is Mark Rifkin, a partner at Wolf Haldenstein, who represents consumers in an antitrust lawsuit against Apple. So who won this case? Did anyone win this case? I think it's a tie. I think there are parts of the court's decision that each side can claim as victories. Well, certainly Epic can claim an enormous victory in the court's decision to enjoin the anti-steering provisions for IAP. I think that's an important part of Apple's business model. And as it stands now, Apple cannot continue that particular practice, which is a, a major victory for, for Epic. So I think that's a big deal. I think it's also a big deal that the court found that Apple's 30% commission was anti-competitive and essentially unjustified. Some say that that could wipe billions from Apple's profits. I think that opening IAP so that developers can sell directly to consumers, at least for in-app purchases, risks a substantial revenue stream for Apple. I won't predict what that will be, but it certainly is a substantial revenue stream. Whether Apple can retain those developers after the court's order becomes effective is a huge question. And the effect on Apple's revenue is something that we're all going to watch over the next you know, several months and year or so. For the average person, how will it work in the future? You'll go into the App Store and you'll get a choice of whether to pay through Apple or whether to pay through the developer? I think that's exactly right. I think, and it's not on the App Store that this happens. It's it's within the app. IAP is an in-app purchase. So let's talk about, for example, let's talk about a gaming app. If you're playing a game, and you have the option to buy a game token or a game piece or extra lives or whatever it may be, that's a purchase that you make while playing the app. It's an in-app purchase, and you can do that from your phone or from your uh, iOS device if you're playing on a tablet, whatever it is. But that payment now under the court's decision does not need to be processed through Apple. Apple won't get to collect the revenue and won't get to impose its 30% commission on that fee. You'll be able to pay the developer directly from the app for that in-app purchase. So that's a, that's a significant change to the way Apple is processing payments on in-app purchases. But there are other in-app purchases as well that are just as important. For example, if you have the New York Times app on your phone and you subscribe to the New York Times, you can now do it directly through the New York Times when the judge's order is implemented from your phone without having to leave your phone, go to a web browser, log into your New York Times account, and subscribe that way. You can do it directly from the app. So those are those are big changes, no doubt about it. So let's talk a little bit about her ruling. The key was defining the market in right. question. And basically, she disagreed with both sides about the definition of the market. So why is yes. the key defining the market and how did she define it? Well, in, in any antitrust case, the 
the first fundamental question you have to ask is what's the relevant market in which the alleged monopolist is supposed to be operating? And, and here she picked a market of international portable game applications. It was both broader than and narrower than the markets that each side was proposing. And what it meant was her analysis of Apple's ability to control the market and the effect on competition in the market that she defined is driven by the definition of the market. And ultimately, she concluded that Apple did not have monopoly power and did not exert monopoly power in the particular market that she defined. So the judge wrote success is not illegal. She cautioned that its market share of more than 55% wasn't enough to sustain a monopoly case. But did she indicate that in the future, it could be a monopoly if it gets higher? Well, she made a point to say that there's no magic number, that there's a range of numbers in which some cases have said it's enough and some cases have said it's not. She balanced all of the factors in the record before her, and she concluded on the basis of all those facts that Apple did not possess sufficient monopoly power in the relevant market that she defined. But it doesn't change the overall legal framework of what constitutes the requisite monopoly power. In other words, it's a very case-specific, fact-intensive kind of inquiry, and she acknowledged that in her decision. So now, Apple had argued that it has a walled garden model and that it needed to control the entire App Store ecosystem to ensure privacy and protect consumers from being ripped off. Did the judge agree with that? The judge found on the basis of the evidence presented in the EPIC trial that she could not conclude that there was anything anti-competitive about the walled garden. She recognized that it was a differentiating factor for Apple, but she did not have enough evidence uh, in the record before her, or at least this was her conclusion that she did not have enough evidence in the record before her to make a decision that that was anti-competitive. I'm just wondering if this decision will affect antitrust regulators bringing an antitrust action against Apple. Well, no, because I, I think that where the court found in Apple's favor, it was as much because of the evidence that was presented in the trial and what she felt was insufficient evidence And I won't comment on whether I agree or disagree with that. But she said that she felt that there was insufficient evidence on some of the issues that she needed to address. But that doesn't mean that in another context, in another case, that someone couldn't present more evidence or different evidence. And so, for example, when we look at the case and we look at what was offered by way of the security justifications for locking the App Store, we may choose to present different evidence in our case than Epic presented in its trial because the focus of our case will be different. And on the basis of the record that we uh, create in our trial, the court may reach a different conclusion. Explain that finding of this judge about the 30% commission. Well, in a, in a nutshell, what the judge said is Apple decided to charge 30% without any justification for doing so, 
and it has proven to be immensely profitable for Apple. And despite the fact that there have been enormous changes in the scope uh, of the App Store, Apple has by and large adhered to that single 30% commission, which the court found to be unjustified on a competitive basis. Tell us about your case. Remind us. So we represent the consumers who have been locked into this ecosystem by Apple's virtual 100% monopoly over the App Store. If you buy an iPhone or an iOS device and you want to put apps on your device, you have nowhere to go and nowhere to shop except the App Store. So in our case, Apple doesn't have 55% of the market. Apple has 100% of the market. And so clearly, Apple has market power in the market that we believe is relevant in our case. And so that's, that's one differentiation between our case and Epic's case. Your case went up to the Supreme Court. Give us a little bit of the history of it. So we began litigating this case way back in 2007 when the iPhone was first introduced, and we sued both Apple and AT&T. And we were successful all the way up to the point when the Supreme Court decided uh, AT&T versus Concepcion and reversed what was the law in the Ninth Circuit that made arbitration agreements essentially unlawful. So at that point, the court decided that we had to arbitrate our claims against AT&T. And so we, we split the case between Apple and AT&T. We only pursued Apple. And, uh, and we've been litigating the case ever since then. We now have two separate cases, one uh, on behalf of iPhone customers who complain about excessive voice and data charges, and the other, the one that went to the Supreme Court, on behalf of consumers, iPhone consumers, who complain about uh, excessive prices for apps and in-app purchases because of Apple's monopolization of the App Store and their super competitive 30% commission. So this case and the court's finding that the 30% commission was anti-competitive is an enormous help to us. What was the ruling when you went to the Supreme Court? So the Supreme Court um, had to consider whether we were direct purchasers from Apple for purposes of standing under the what is called the Illinois brick line of uh, cases that the Supreme Court decided in 1977. And there, the, in our case, the Supreme Court said, yes, app store purchases, buy apps, and it, uh, obviously make in-app purchases directly from Apple because that's the way Apple set the store up. So that if, if you own an iPhone or an iOS device and you want to put an app on the phone or you want to make an in-app purchase, at least up to this point in time, you had to do so directly from Apple. 14 years. I mean, is this an exceptional case that it's been litigated for 14 years, or is this par for the course with Apple? Well, it's, it's an exceptional case. It's not completely unheard of. Um, Apple certainly is known to litigate cases aggressively, you know, to the end, and sometimes complex cases, particularly antitrust cases, that involve multiple appeals, as our case has, you know, 14 years is long, but not, not so long that, that it's unthinkable. And, and it's unfortunate because, you know, people, 
people do suffer injury while the case is proceeding. I wish there were a, a faster, more efficient way to litigate these cases, but um, but this is what it is. What stage are you at now? So we're in the class certification phase of the case where we're asking the court to let us uh, proceed on behalf of, of a class of uh, all Apple customers in the United States who paid for apps or in-app purchases after buying their uh, iOS devices. And that, uh, that will continue briefing, will continue for another few weeks, and then hopefully the court will hear argument and make a decision in the not-too-distant future. And then you'll go to trial? Well, we'll probably have to finish some discovery, although we've done an awful lot of discovery because we were, we were forced to uh, complete a lot of discovery on the same schedule as Epic. Uh, there's probably some some additional discovery that we'll want to take, but uh, we're scheduled to go to trial in, I believe, in September of 2022, so September of next year. Before the same judge? Before the same judge, yes. Thanks so much, Mark. That's Mark Rifkin, a partner at Wolf Haldenstein. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.